from the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Hello, doctor, as in PhD doctor, Pope. Hello, Dan. So today we are talking about the two largest sectors of the economy in terms of financial outlay. What, What do you think the two sectors are? Well, this is cheating because I know what the <laughs> we're talking about. Today. You complain, I, I would, don't make it easy okay. enough for you. <laughs> Education and medicine, health, health. Yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of stunning that we spend. There's more money spent on education than than technology. But these these are the two largest sectors, and today we're talking about where they intersect. And so, perhaps as a not as a doctor. But as a parent or a child, you saw a place where they uh, intersected. And so here's my question to you. What, what is the most outrageous example of someone getting a doctor's note for getting out of something at school that, that you can think of? Wow. Well, I, I can tell you this, this was crazy. I heard this uh, working with Challenge Success. So we work with, with schools where there's a lot of stress. And this was actually um, uh, a doctor came up to me and said – you think there's a lot of stress in school? There's there's a lot of stress in sports, and particularly school sports. And this was an orthopedic surgeon, and he was asked to take the cast off of his patient, let the kid play the game, and then put the cast back on. <laughs> like, it was that ridiculous. Isn't that crazy? That's a pretty interesting theory of uh, bone mending. <laughs> right. Like, could you just take the cast off? Just do this for the game. It's a really important game. So my, my, my example is also sports. In, in junior high, which was uh, seventh and ninth grade when I went to school, we had these uh, gym coaches who had the 600-yard dash, which is kind of the worst distance. Like, people puke after it. And so there's this one kid who managed to get a doctor's note that he didn't have to run it because he had chapped lips. Oh, come on. No, I'm serious. That's hysterical. It was great. It was... (laughs) If you run really super fast, it could be dangerous. You could chap your own lips. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> well, and the other thing that I, I privily, vividly remember was is going to the school nurse. And, you know, not a lot of schools have nurses all, all across the country. I know there are still many that do, but, but several in California, the nurses have been cut. This is because it's, no, it's not legally required? Or? No, because of funding. Because if you have to cut something, then we'll just have one nurse per district, let's say, mm-hmm. instead of one nurse at, at a school. So um, it, you know, it used to be you could go and you could lie down. You weren't feeling well, and there was like a little bed in there, and the nurse was this really sweet person. If you got a boo boo, she would put a band aid on and stuff. So I have that memory. I remember that. Do you? I, yeah, I went once. I, I think I was, you know, flu puking, but I do remember the butcher paper. Laid across the top of the, of the cot bed. where you laid down. Yeah, yeah, the cot. It was the only place in the school where you could lay down. 
Huh. That's a, that, it's a pretty that's important. <laughs> that's a pretty important place, right? <laughs> With all the germs inherent in it. Um, anyway, I'm really excited about today's show. Um, we are here with Dr. Neville Golden, who is a professor of pediatrics at Stanford and the chief of adolescent medicine. And Dr. Golden specializes in a lot of different things, and we're going to talk about a lot of different things today because we're talking really where schools and doctors intersect. And one of the things when I heard um, Neville speak was he talked about something that he trains all of his um, future doctors and current doctors to do, which is to, as doctors, in a, in a well-child visit, ask about school. So mm -hmm. Dr. Golden, welcome, welcome, welcome. And, and talk to us about what it is you're training these people to ask. First, thanks for having me. Um, we call this the HEADS Assessment, and that's an acronym. H stands for home, E is education, A activity, and D is drugs and depression, and S is suicidality and sexuality. So we ask about all these issues to every adolescent who comes to see us at a time that's separate from the time with their parents. So it's confidential. Um, we let the parent know that this is confidential, and we let the parent know that we're not going to share information. So education is part of it, because not everyone is attending school. Um, some people are attending school and are stressed out by school, not getting enough sleep because of the pressures of school. But in addition to that, we ask about home. We also ask about drugs, smoking, not only smoking cigarettes, but also marijuana, using marijuana in other ways. We ask about how they're feeling, because as you know, um, depression is rampant in our society, especially in the adolescent age group. And we ask them if they've had any thoughts of hurting themselves. We also ask about sexuality. We ask open-ended questions. Um, how do you see yourself? Do you see, identify as male or female? Are you attracted to males, females, both or not sure? And we ask about sexual activity and what they've done to protect themselves. So we start this at the age of 12 and go up to the age of 21 and, and after. So let, let, yeah. let's stick with education. Okay. Uh, so I tell I'm, – I'm a 12-year-old and I say, yeah, I'm missing classes. Uh, I'm, I'm getting late to school. As a doctor, what, what, what do you do? You, you don't – do you communicate with the school? You, how, what is the step you can take when you find out? No, I don't think that necessarily is our role. I think the first role is to find out why. For example, I saw a young girl yesterday in our clinic who was getting late to school every day, but there were medical reasons why. So in that situation, I would speak with the patient and her parents and see what I could do. And in that situation, I did actually send a note to the school saying there was a medical reason why she needed to be late. And uh, I think that, that took a lot of pressure off both mm -hmm. the patient, mm -hmm. the 12-year-old, and her parents. I see. I see. What exactly are you asking about school? Are you saying, are you going? Are you saying, do you like it? What exactly are you asking? Yeah, we, we ask what grade you're in, um, what your grades are like, um, what are your favorite subjects, what are your most difficult subjects, and we ask them about career goals. Clearly, it differs if you have a 12-year-old from a 17-year-old. Um, and we sometimes ask if what their GPA is, if they do have a GPA. And it, it's very cursory, but it does give us an insight into what's going on in their home and their school. Um, for example, 
not everyone attends school every day, right? And this we see fairly often, and their parents aren't intervening, and you wonder what's happening. How, how are they f falling through the cracks? And we are fortunate in our clinic we have a social worker, so then we have someone who can take it from there. So they, when they say they're not going to school and you have just told them that this is confidential information, you can't then go back to the parent and say, hey, you know your kid's ditching school. Well, w what we say, th there's a way of conveying that information about confidentiality. Uh, we say much of what we're going to talk about is confidential with a couple of exceptions. And in those exceptions, and, and we talk about what they are, if you're going to hurt yourself or hurt someone else, we would have to divulge that information um, to your parents, but we did, wouldn't do so without speaking to you first. Interestingly enough, the information about education is not confidential, um, but information about substance abuse, mental health, and sexuality is protected by the law. And what's interesting, and I don't know if everyone knows this, is as a teacher, you are actually obligated the same way. If you um, suspect that a child is hurting himself or is a, is a danger to himself or to others, you actually are required um, to report that to, right. to the principal. That's right. So you've got a lot of different eyes looking out for you. So one, one of the places where I think medicine is going to interact very directly with the life of a child in school has to be around eating disorders. And that this is your area of expertise. So is this something that's increasing, decreasing? Oh, it's definitely increasing. There's no question. Part of it is we're not sure if the real incidence is going up. That, what I mean by that is eating disorders have been around since the 1600s. Mm. They were first described then. But we're much more aware of them. Um, pediatricians know about them and they can identify them early. And we're now recognizing that eating disorders are not really confined to young, thin, adolescent girls, but we see eating disorders in boys and in girls, in all socioeconomic groups, and in people of all sizes. So definitely we are seeing more, and we do interact with the schools a lot because they, they are understanding that if a, if a person is out of school for a while with a low heart rate, quote-unquote, that often this is related to an eating disorder, and the schools make accommodations. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking today with Dr. Neville Golden, who is the Chief of Adolescent Medicine at Stanford Children's Health, and we are listening to him describe where schools and doctors interact, and one area that we're talking about is eating disorders. So what, what are examples of eating disorders? So the classical eating disorders that we've heard about are anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. Um, simply anorexia nervosa is someone who is, has lost a lot of weight because of preoccupation with weight and shape, and they usually are of low weight. Um, and bulimia nervosa is, identifies people who actually are binging, that is eating large amounts of food in a small amount of time where there's a lack of control, but also compensating in dangerous ways. Mm. Everyone knows about self-induced vomiting, but compensation can be use of diet pills, laxatives, diuretics, or excessive exercise. So you don't need to throw up to meet criteria for yeah. bulimia. Oh, interesting. And what's interesting, I know that the schools can help identify this too. So I know it goes both ways, right? The doctor may identify, but um, 
I know even with my own daughter, she sees friends who are who she is worried about who don't eat lunch, who skip lunch, who go to the gym instead of eating lunch, and and it's kind of sparks some worry in in her head um, because that their parents aren't necessarily seeing that, so their parents have no idea that they're not eating lunch or they're doing these these at this extra exercising, but the peers and the teachers and the schools can can be useful. Is that? Right, and I think it's important. You asked about the different types of eating disorders. I just mentioned two. Everyone knows about those. But that actually only accounts for a minority of the patients that we see at Stanford. Um, You can have what's called atypical anorexia nervosa, where someone was previously overweight, lost weight, but is now of normal weight. So, yes, um, the behaviors are probably more important than what the weight status is. There's also a condition that schools may be aware of, or teachers may be aware of, called ARFID. That's a new condition recently Mm. described in only 2013. That stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. So these are individuals who are not worried about body weight or shape or body image, but don't eat green foods or yellow foods or will only eat white foods or have fear of vomiting, And these behaviors lead to a low body weight or interference with growth and development. So I I have to ask, uh, is is there some evolutionary account for why people are so pliable in their behaviors around dieting? Why, why, Why this would show up? Like anorexia, like it's a starvation response and... Once you start to starve, you no longer can tell you're hungry. And Oh, yeah. There, there are great studies. Uh, the best studies were conducted in 1945, 1950, not in adolescent girls, but in young men who were conscientious objectors, didn't want to fight in the Second World War. These were young guys in their early 20s who were voluntarily starved on 1,600 calories a day. Most people don't consider that semi-starvation. But the interesting thing is, Most of these young men developed all the cognitive distortions that you see in eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Fear of gaining weight, dreaming of food, hiding food, collecting recipes. Mm -hmm. Actually, some of them became depressed and some became bulimic. And these were young, healthy men. So the point is that anyone who has wrong information and goes on a quote-unquote diet runs the risk of developing an eating disorder. Wow. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Dr. Neville Golden about eating disorders and the role that school can play. And that's actually where I want to head with this question, which is you hear a lot about perfectionism and its connection to um, eating disorders. And I know that schools play a role in perfectionism. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so with certain eating disorders, anorexia nervosa being the prototype, perfectionism and obsessionality is a key feature. Um, These young people, no matter how good they are and how well they perform, don't feel good enough about themselves. You see it in the schoolroom with classes. Most of our patients, by the way, are straight-A students. You should know that. Um, But you also see it on the sports field as well where no matter how well they perform and how good they are, they just don't feel good enough. And there are things the schools can do. Coaches, for example, in a young woman athlete who's not having her period, that's a red flag for the coach. There's something abnormal there. That's not a part of training. So, yeah, if there's a coach who identifies somehow knows that 
her patient or her, her team member is not having a regular period, that's of concern, and this person should be advised to seek medical help. And and I know that's – so first of all, I'm thinking, okay, with my own kids, would their coaches know this or not? That's not something that you talk to your coach about. But I have heard where coaches have said, you know, you, you need to lose a little bit more weight, put a little bit more muscle on. So a coach can actually – and that's your coach. You're supposed to do what the coach says, right? A coach can actually contribute maybe in in some negative ways. Oh, yeah. And a lot of effort has gone into training coaches about what are eating disorders and how um, – And e- there is a condition called the female athlete triad. This is in females, but there's probably an equivalent in males as well where because of disordered eating, meaning either you're trying to lose weight or – because a coach has told you to do so, or for body image, or you just don't know what your energy requirements are, then you lose your period, and then you can be at risk for bone fractures. So that we see fairly commonly. Stress fractures in young girls and boys could be related to an underlying energy insufficiency or deficiency. It's pretty scary. So I'm perseverating. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's no, okay. it's it, it's such a, a interesting place where I can look at myself in the mirror and not see reality. So so I do this. I look in the mirror, and what I, looks back at me is an eighteen year old boy. I, I don't. You don't look a day over eighteen, Dan. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> Thank you, Denise. I think the mirror is not lying. <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> Who flatters the most of all? But. Uh, so, so this is a strange space, right? I, I, I assume. I mean, this is what I've heard. Um, I'm anorexic. I look in the mirror, and I don't see that I'm sort of thin beyond what I should be. I see myself as being overweight. Whereas, if I look at other people, I don't, I don't have that same phenomenon. I see them more clearly. And this, uh, this is just how's this possible? But that's correct, and and that's the hardest thing to deal with because. In forming a therapeutic relationship with someone, you've got to persuade them that what they're seeing is not real. It's actually very easy to understand in someone who was previously overweight. You can understand how they see themselves as still being overweight in the wrong body. Um, but in someone who's previously normal weight and is now skeletal, and um, that's very hard to understand. But it's real. It's there, mm. and it mm. actually impedes their getting better right this is schools in with dan schwartz and denise pope we will have more with dr neville golden talking about eating disorders and the role that schools and coaches and parents can play next on sirius xm insight 121 we translate the research we know about best practices with school curriculum and parenting to teachers administrators parents and youth You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Dr. Neville Golden, who's the Chief of Adolescent Medicine, Professor of Pediatrics here at Stanford. And we're talking a bit about eating disorders, school, what parents can do. And I just want to clarify, because you, you, you mentioned something really important about perfectionism. Um, I don't want to have everybody scared about this. So to do all perfectionists ultimately lead into an eating disorder? N- not at all. Um, most people who are perfectionistic do really well in their professions. They become educators, they become lawyers, they become accountants, they become physicians. 
right? So it's only in the context of predisposing factors. Someone who's already predisposed to develop an eating disorder, perhaps because of a family um, history of an eating disorder or some other, or because they're dieting, that kind of person is more likely to be turned over by things like perfectionism. But perfectionism is a trait that actually can be quite helpful to people. So don't be afraid of it. It's only in a predisposed individual. And let's talk about some of those risk factors. So, you know, in society with social media now all the time, everybody, everything is about your looks being plastered all over the world and pictures and smiles and, and selfies. Um, what are some of the risk factors that a parent should really be on the lookout for? So that is true. I mean, we live in an environment where thin is equated with success and beauty. And that's challenging for everyone, but in particular for teens who are developing their own identity. Um, we know in a place like Fiji, before the advent of television, eating disorders were almost unknown. Wow. Um, but once television came, there's a whole increased wow. incidence of them. So social media, television, the media play an important part. Also biology, so predisposition because of a family history is important. And then there is the type of personality makeup that you alluded to, the perfectionist, obsessional type of person. But usually there has to be a precipitating factor. And in almost 100% of cases, that's dieting. Dieting starts off this cycle of biological events that result in the preoccupation of weight and shape that actually accelerates and gets worse over time. So dieting is bad news. And dieting not only predisposes to eating disorders, but also to obesity. Um, healthy adolescents who diet are much more likely to be overweight five years later. Um, so we should discourage dieting and parents should discourage dieting in their children, but also in themselves. Interesting, because it's not, it's not, you know, you hear about the obesity epidemic. Everybody keeps talking about the obesity epidemic. You think that dieting, so, you know, I'm eating healthy versus dieting. Right. What's the difference So di dieting is cutting down on one's calories with an intent purpose of losing weight. Um, eating healthy would be choosing foods that are healthier, possibly low-fat, variety of different foods, and foods that are healthy. But it's not uncommon for people with eating disorders to start off saying they are eating healthy. Right. So one has to be careful. What exactly does that mean and explore that further? Um, someone with an eating disorder cuts out fats, carbs, um, high-calorie foods, red meats, and a whole host of other things. Someone who eats healthy eats a variety of different foods and can be flexible. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm just. I'm. God, I'm just so self-centered on this thing. So, <laughs> so like, I'm. I'm sort of in a perpetual diet. No, you're right? not. And, I hope and, you're not. And, and, no, and, Dan, well, are you? Well, I. I won't have. Uh, no, I, no fries with this. I'm not going to have fries because that's too many calories. Or maybe that's not a diet. Maybe I'm just. I'm being prudent and not overeating. Well, I think one has to be careful, and especially um, for parents who have children. Uh, one has to be cautious about the language used. I wouldn't use that language to, especially if you have adolescents or pre-adolescents in the home. Um, you can rather decide you don't want fries because you're concerned about your cholesterol, perhaps, or for some other reason. 
but you 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 know it's not like you eliminate complete food groups or hopefully you will taste a dessert sometime on special occasions mm-hmm. so um just be cautious dieting actually is is not helpful and um, most people who go on a diet end up either binging or gaining weight or becoming too obsessive about that so the the aim is really to just have a balanced approach to eating and also activity exercise This is Schools in with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Dr. Neville Golden about healthy weight versus eating disorders and tips for parents and schools and teachers to think about. Um, what let's let's talk about what we call protective factors. And I know um, what that means is that you can do certain things to protect yourself from getting this disease. What are the best protective factors you found? Before we talk about, can I just mention one other thing? I think this is important for parents. Um, Yes. Weight talk. And by that, Mm -hmm. I mean disparaging comments about one's own weight or someone else's weight. Also a no-no. So after Thanksgiving, you know, eating, eating a lot, feeling I can't get into my clothes, making comments about one's own body, um, not helpful because in homes where that occurs – kids are much more likely to develop an eating disorder. So the parents' comments actually can lead to problems with their children. That's right. So, and, and that's why, so when you're talking about protective factors, the other side of that is family meals. The research has shown that family meals really, in families where there are family meals a couple of times a week, um, kids eat from a greater variety of different food groups, um, they're much more likely to be healthy. And when that never occurs, that those kids are much more likely to develop either obesity or eating disorders. Why, I'm not sure, but it's possibly because that's a time for parents to model healthy behaviors. Also, it's a time to talk about other things, not related to food, find out what's going on at school, and find out what's going on in the kid's life. Right, interesting with Challenge Success, we have the same exact protective factor to protect kids from stress or to protect kids from um, disengagement in school is family meals. And what we found is it doesn't matter actually what's being served, unlike probably what you found, but it's the time together. And if you're together for 20 to 25 minutes, you know, ideally the research says five times a week, um, it, it's really hard to fall through the crack when everybody's checking in and you see the kids. If um, five sounds too high, we know that there's protective value even in just having, you know, a family meal once, twice, or three times a week. So oh I'm God. right there with you. I've done everything wrong. Oh, no. I, I'm just listening to this. I've done every single thing wrong, you know. Well, it's just not wrong, but there may be better ways of doing it next time around. He, he, would, eat, he would eat fast food every night, and I would have a nice salad and talk about my weight. And well, no, but no, but you were a single dad. I think that is something to say. To, so, so how we define family as family meals is really broad. So, so you're a single, you were a single dad. Um, um, a, a family meal would be really the two of you enjoying a meal together and talking and discussing. And fast food is okay every once in a while because it saves time. But we know that that you you want a healthy variety. Okay, we're gonna. I don't want to run out of time before sleep. Talk about sleep. Because uh, sleep, sleep is, if we're talking adolescents, this is just a huge issue. No, sleep is a huge issue. And we see so many stressed out adolescents and they come back from school, they have sports, they come home, they have homework that goes on till one, two in the morning sometimes. And they 
not getting enough sleep. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended that adolescents get between you know, eight and nine hours of sleep a night. That just doesn't happen. And they've actually gone ahead and actually recommended further that high schools consider starting school later in the morning in order to accommodate the adolescents. Because adolescents have a different sleep cycle from younger kids. It's probably better to get your younger kids to start at 7 and the adolescent to start at 8 or 8.30. So very few of my patients end up getting 8 hours of sleep a night. Many of them are getting 6, 7 sometimes, some even 3, 4. Right. And, and there as a parent, it's very obvious that my kid's not sleeping enough. Is yeah. that... Is, is there something subtle here well, for me as a parent? Well, sometimes the parents go to bed before their kid goes to bed, and they don't know. Uh-huh. Yeah, and there are things, Denise, we've talked about sleep hygiene. Yes. There, there are things, and perhaps you can recommend some of the suggestions you've made in the past. I would be happy to know. <laughs> well, I, I, I think um, getting all the technology out of the bedroom is an absolute must. It, it, it keeps them up. Um, obviously, we work with schools to get later school start times and to flip the bus schedules so that the younger kids get picked up first. Um, winding down and having a constant bedtime. A lot of adolescents kind of binge sleep on the weekend, and they then they go back, and Monday they got to get up. So there's a lot of things you can do um, for sleep hygiene. I, uh, this show, I know, Dan's shaking his head. We've heard so many things in the show, right? As a parent, you got to you have to deal with the food, you have to deal with the sleep, you have to look. The, the doctors are asking about: Are you going to school? I mean, it takes a village to really raise a healthy child. And Neville, thank you, thank you for being here and being part, a really important part of that village. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're on the campus of Stanford University and on Sirius XM Insight One Twenty One. University. This has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.